Amen. Well, our Christmas theme this year is He Shall Reign Forever. We've got a slide up there right now. And we wanted, you know, 2020, let's just say it, is like not letting up. And I feel like we were all like, okay, we've only got one month left of 2020. And meanwhile, 2020 is like, I've got a whole month left to mess with us. So we intentionally picked this theme because he shall reign forever is what we need to know. And it even looks like a storybook ending, right? We're doing that. It flies in the face of how everyone else feels about this year. Because in Christ, we have that. It doesn't matter how the story on earth ends. Christ gives us this promise that he shall reign forever. So today, the title of the sermon is Into the Darkness. And you can uh, open your Bibles up to Luke chapter 2, and you can also open your Bibles up, uh, can hold your place in Matthew 2. But we are going to be in Luke chapter 2, and we are going to be in Matthew chapter 2. And um, today is going to be a different kind of Christmas sermon, because my entire goal today, uh, usually we pick a passage, some verses, and we go verse by verse, and we, we learn about what the Bible's teaching in that passage, right? Uh, today, the whole um, goal is to give you a background into what the world was like in Jesus' day. And that's going to help us to appreciate Christmas so much more because we're going to learn that Jesus stepped down into darkness. And, and this year has been so hard and so unpredictable and so disorienting. And I want you to understand that this is the life Jesus entered. In fact, if we can just get in the world of Christ for a morning and look around and see what the world was like, you are going to have a totally different understanding of what Christmas really was. Light from heaven coming down into this messed up world. It's always fun to look back and to talk about what life was like, right? What, if somebody were to say, what was life like in your day? You'd have some stories, right? Uh, because I'm approaching my mid-40s, I think I'm in that club where I can talk about my day, right? Wouldn't you agree? Uh, I can tell stories about what life was like in my day. And it's kind of when you talk about life back then, it's fascinating, it's humorous, it's profound to learn about how people used to live even just a few decades ago. So I was born in 1977, and back in my day, we only had landline phones. All right, we didn't even have cordless phones to start with. They were all wired, and we only had one line. I remember when the day came where we got call waiting. And when you were on a call, someone else could call. And we were like, well, voila, this is the height of technology. Now, you didn't know who it was because we didn't yet have caller ID. You just heard a beep and you can pick up and somebody else is calling. Please hold. That was technology. We had record players. Cassette players were becoming popular. And I remember the first time I got a Walkman. You can walk around outside of your house and listen to music. It was really astonishing. I remember when my dad brought the first VCR home, and we could actually record and re-watch something that was on television. Well, now, now we're at the mountaintop, right? I remember we didn't have a garage door opener. I was the garage door opener. We'd get home and my dad would say, go open the garage door and I'd have to get out of the car and lift the whole thing up. And uh, then after the car was in the garage, I'd have to close it back down. That's what life was like back in my day. 
In sixth grade, we had computer class. We went into a computer lab with all Apple computers, and there were two colors, black and pea green, right, on the screen. And we learned DOS coding. All right, there's no Windows. We, we learned how to enter code. They gave it, that's, that was life back in my day. When you start talking about what life was like, it's very fascinating and interesting. What was life like in Jesus' day? Well, let's talk first about where he was born. Uh, we're going to pull up a little Google Earth thing here. I, I actually recorded this myself, but there's planet Earth, so it's a little low-tech. Okay, but here's planet Earth, and we're going to zoom in to Bethlehem, which is the birthplace of Jesus. So you can see here where Jesus actually came down from heaven. Uh, Brad, our tech guy, was like, this is like the star cam, the Christmas star cam, following where Jesus was born. So there's Jerusalem. Bethlehem was actually fairly close to Jerusalem. I think it's about six miles from Jerusalem. And uh, Jesus came down from heaven to live here. Uh, now, in the day of Jesus, the scholars think that Jesus was born about 6 BC, 4, four to 6 BC, but probably 6 BC. What was, what was Bethlehem like in 6 BC? Like, if you could, if you could just go there and look around and see what this ancient city was like. What was the world, if Jesus could get up here and say, here's what life was like in my day. Uh, if, if he could just give us a tour of what the world was like uh, all around, what, what would that be like? What you're going to understand is um, when Jesus arrived, he arrived to a dark and dangerous world. Today we're going to see just how helpless and powerless and poor and exposed he truly was. Yet God demonstrated his sovereign supernatural control over all the chaos of this world. That's what's going to become evident. So if you're in Luke chapter 2, uh, verse 1, you can, you can write this first note down, and then we'll read from Luke 2. Jesus was a small-town nobody in the vast Roman Empire. Jesus was a small-town nobody in the vast Roman Empire. In Luke chapter 2, the story of the birth of Christ, it makes it clear um, that the world was big and Jesus was small. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar, Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And when they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. We learned so much about the world Jesus entered into. There was a Caesar, there was a census, uh, there's all these towns, Nazareth, Galilee, uh, Bethlehem, and uh, there were a lot of moving pieces here. Now flip over to Matthew chapter 2, and in Matthew chapter 2 we learn a little bit more. Uh, the story of the wise men in Matthew actually happened, I don't mean to ruin your Christmas manger and you don't have to change your decorations, okay? So, uh, but the wise men likely came one to two years after Jesus was born, all right? Uh, a couple of years ago, our dog ate the wise men out of the manger scene. Maybe he knew and he wasn't happy about it. I don't know, but he ate all the wise men, left, left Christ alone, which was really good. Uh, so I don't know, but it was, it was about one or two years after Jesus was born that the wise men actually showed up. 
And so in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, there's Herod, Herod the king, behold, wise men uh, from the east came to Jerusalem. So these were uh, people from probably Persia. They traveled maybe a thousand miles to get there. Um, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Born king. They were standing before the king. Where is the one who was born king? Fun fact, Herod was not born king. He became king when he got a place of rule, and then uh, I think it was the Persians that showed up, took his throne away. He whined back to Rome. They gave him an army, and he had to come back and reclaim his throne, but he was not born king. So they're like, Herod's like, what are you talking about? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Liar. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where uh, the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then, what, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Re Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is the full Christmas story. And we are going to step into that story and look around today and learn who was in charge, what happened, and how dark was the world when Jesus stepped down. Jesus was a small-town nobody in the vast Roman Empire. Israel was a client kingdom in Rome. So they were conquered by and occupied by another nation, Rome. And Rome was in complete control of the entire country. Here is an artist's depiction of Rome, the city of Rome. Uh, it was a glorious city. And they were a glorious empire. The empire, it sounds like Star Wars, doesn't it? The empire. The empire had total control. And it was expanding. Julius Caesar had fought many wars, expanding the empire, and then sadly many wars internally, civil wars. Here's a picture of the map of the Roman Empire and its expansion. And this is actually the expansion of the Roman Empire under uh, Caesar Augustus. 
Caesar Augustus uh, was, the first, uh, was the first emperor of Rome. Before that, the government was different. It became an empire. He was the first one to have total control over the whole empire. Uh, and so this, this was the vast Roman Empire, and Jesus was born and lived way over there to the right. You can barely see it. He was just a tiny little pixel. That's where he was born. Jesus was a small-town nobody in the vast Roman Empire. And to make things more interesting, his parents were from Nazareth, but then they went down to Bethlehem for a little while, fled to Egypt, and then ended up back in Nazareth. Nazareth wasn't just a small town. Nazareth was a trashy town. Uh, Nazareth had a reputation, right? So some towns have a reputation. When Lauren and I sent Ellie down to college, uh, she goes to college in uh, Jackson, Tennessee. So when we went down there, we visited Nashville. Nashville's a cool town. Everybody likes Nashville. We walked around. We had some good barbecue. We saw all the sights. We were like, we like Nashville. And then when we went down again, we were like, let's go to Memphis. And suddenly people were like, oh, it's different. We're like, what? Oh, yeah, it's, it's different. Be careful. We're like, be careful? Isn't that where Graceland is? Isn't that the town of Elvis? Right? How many of you have been to Graceland? You visited, you made the pilgrimage right down to uh, there. <laughs> yeah. So we were like, well, how bad can it be? Well, it, it's actually really run down. And Graceland is beautiful. We just drove by and saw it. We, you know, but, but everything around it, you know, like this is, this is the town where Elvis was when he was a child. He didn't grow up there, but when he, you know, he was there for a part of his childhood and then he lived there. It's the town of Elvis, right? But it's got a reputation. Sure enough, as we're driving around, it's really run down and not safe. Unsafe things happen while we were driving around there. So we found a little nook that was safe and got lunch and then we got out of there. Now, if you went to Nazareth, the town of Jesus, right? In his day, you'd be like, let's get out of here. <laughs> let's get out of here. One of Jesus' own disciples said, can anything good, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So he was a small town nobody in the vast Roman Empire and lived in a let's get out of here town. Jot this down. Caesar tolerated no threats to his throne. Caesar tolerated no threats to his throne. Uh, you might have opinions about your government. It's a luxury to even have opinions about your government. Back in that day, you were just a subject. You weren't even a citizen, right? You didn't even have right. Bill of Rights? Free speech? What are those things? You exist to play your small part in the Caesar's empire. Caesar tolerated no threats to his throne. Here's some pictures of what they think Julius Caesar looked like. He's one of Rome's greatest, most memorable, most popular uh, 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 rulers. And Julius Caesar had an adopted nephew who he left in charge. And he had several names, but you can go ahead and put his picture up there. This is Caesar Augustus. Uh, he, he also went by the name Octavian. And at, just as a 20-year-old young man, when Julius Caesar was assassinated, Octavian saw his uh, opportunity, sprang into action, and plunged the country into another civil war where he won the right to become the ruler of the world. And uh, Octavian became the first emperor of Rome. And this, this guy was young, 5'7", right? So he, he had to fight to establish his prominence. And once he became Rome's first emperor, he stamped his own image on millions of coins, and he wrote the slogan, uh, Divi Filius. D.V. Phileas 
son of God. Son of God. That's how Rome knew him. And so you can see how the thought of another son of God in his empire would not be tolerated. Caesar tolerated no threats to his throne. Jot this down. What about Herod? King Herod was ruthless and paranoid. So the Caesar, who was in command, uh, thought he was the son of God. Herod, who was the king of Israel, the the Roman-appointed king of Israel, was ruthless and paranoid. He would kill anybody who threatened his throne. And when Jesus was born, Herod was 69 years old. He had already ruled for decades, not easy to do, and he knew how to to stay in power. Here's a picture of what they think Herod looked like. Uh, He was half, uh, uh, this is like uh, somebody that they cast in the movie. So that's what they think he looked like, and it matches up with kind of a picture uh, of, of him from the day. And so Herod was half Jewish, half um, Arab, which you can imagine even back then was quite a combination. And so he wasn't beloved in his country, uh, and he knew how to stay in power, though. He knew how to survive. First, he gifted his people with Roman civilization, vast architectural projects, harbors, aqueducts, fortresses, stadiums, um, and some of his greatest building projects included the, uh, his palace. Here's a picture of Herod's palace. This is actually a, a remake. Uh, it's a smaller model. Um, but this, this is where, can you imagine the pride? Can you imagine the prominence when you live there and you rule a whole country and you are welcome in Rome and you can talk to Caesar? In fact, Caesar himself sent you to take over. Herod had a glorious rule over Israel. The next picture is Herod's temple. Herod knew that the Jewish people were Uh, were were highly religious, and so he expanded and built out this temple and made it practically one of the wonders of the ancient world. Herod's temple uh, was one way that he endeared himself to the population uh, to show them the glory of their overlords. But if that didn't work and people didn't buy in, cruelty and brute force would do just fine. And Herod had no problem killing anyone who was a threat to his throne, and Rome allowed him to do it. Uh, so Herod had 10 wives. He ordered the death of one wife, killed his mother-in-law. He killed three of his own sons. Caesar allegedly said it was better to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons. This was the king in Jesus' day when he was born. And Jesus was born king just six miles away from Herod. Born king. And he wasn't just born king of Herod's kingdom. He was born king of all the world and of heaven. Do you see the peril of the first Christmas? Herod, at this point, was hobbling around the palace, 69 years old. He was a large man, had many medical problems, gout, lung disease, kidney problems, worms, heart disease, STDs, and gangrene. He was not a happy camper. So when the wise men showed up, filled with joy, wanting to worship the one who was born king, Herod sent out the execution order. And he was furious when it didn't work. King Herod was ruthless and paranoid. Jot this down. Israel's leaders were corrupt and terrified. Israel's leaders were corrupt and terrified. So Israel was ruled by a Sanhedrin, a court of 71 religious leaders, made up of Pharisees and Sadducees and others. Imagine in our country... If, um, 
if it was announced that the Supreme Court was going to combine with all of Congress, and they were going to take all the churches in the country and make them one church, and the government was now in charge of that one church. So they were the priests, and they were in charge, I <laughs> see some of you shuddering, <laughs> they were in charge of the court, and the Congress, and the church. That's the Sanhedrin. Um, and so the high priests valued money. They were also like the IRS. The temple was like the only bank, lending, and taxing institution in the country. So the IRS as well. Uh, that was the government in Jesus' day, and it was crooked, and it was corrupt, and all they wanted to do was keep Rome happy and get rich and powerful themselves. That's it. That's it. Jesus was born the true Messiah, and he would therefore threaten their power and wealth by, be claiming, by claiming not only to be a king, but to be God's only begotten son, meaning the highest authority possible belonged to him and not them. Wow. Do you see how Jesus' very existence, his very birth, Christmas, was a challenge to the very powers of the world? So number one, Jesus was a small-town nobody in the vast Roman Empire. Number two, jot this down. Life was simple, but toilsome. Life was simple, but toilsome. So Nazareth was a low-class town with a bad reputation. Mary and Joseph both lived there. It's, that's where Gabriel announced she would bear a child. Sometimes I, I wonder what the angels talk about, and I, I kind of wonder if they were like, you're going down? Where are you going? Rome? <laughs> Athens? No, Nazareth. What? Do they know who we are? What are you doing there? Nazareth is where Gabriel announced that Mary would bear a child miraculously. And this is where the family ended up when Jesus was just a child. Uh, let's talk about what life was like in Nazareth. Jot this down. Houses were small and cramped. Houses were small and cramped in Jesus' day. Uh, we find out in the scripture that Jesus had uh, four brothers that are mentioned, and at least two sisters. It says sisters. There could be more. So if you add up four brothers plus Jesus plus at least two sisters plus Mary and Joseph, they had a family of at least nine, if not sister or sister or sister. We don't know. At least nine, okay? So at least nine. Here's a picture of what uh, one of the most common house designs in Jesus' day. They reenacted this for a museum, but uh, one of the most common house designs in Jesus' day had an open court when you walked into the house. Stone was the primary building tool, um, and the open court likely had an open, open roof so that you can uh, cook, and um, they also always had animals in the house. Imagine the smell. Always, always had animals in the house. Uh, I'm not talking about a cat and a dog, all right? I'm talking about like a donkey uh, and a sheep. Sheep, several of them, right? <laughs> so, and, and so the bottom floor had places where they would cook, where they would store things, likely where they would eat, where they would take care of the sheep, the laundry. Then you'd climb a ladder, stairs? Then you'd climb a ladder up to the second floor that's likely where uh, there, there was living space and some more work would be done. And there was another ladder up to the roof, and the roof also served as a level where there would be socialization. Uh, you could always, the weather's pretty mild in Israel and pleasant, and so you could often sleep up there on the top. Uh, and so houses were, um, were maybe 550 square feet. So imagine on Zillow, you know, you're looking for a house and this comes up, this 550 square foot beauty from the ancient world. <laughs> Would you walk through it? Likely not. The square structure was probably covered in stucco on the outside. Sometimes the houses were built into the hills and in um, Bethlehem, likely the house could have been built into the hills. So it was like part cave, 
part cave, part barn, right? Um, and so this is kind of a typical house. Here's a picture of what a town could have looked like in Jesus' day. And you see that a lot of the houses uh, were, were, were close together. There was no privacy. There was no, like, your yard. There was no yard. You didn't have a yard. Uh, a lot of life was interdependent. So you had to share. You had to trade. And so everyone was in everyone else's business. Houses were small and cramped. Imagine a family of nine uh, in a primitive dwelling. Jot this down. Luxuries were non-existent. Luxuries were non-existent. So indoor plumbing, that was just for the rich. Okay, there were no faucets. There, there was no garbage disposal. There, was, there were no toilets. Uh, if you wanted water, you had to walk and go get it, which had to happen every day from the wells, or if it rained, you collected rainwater. Everyone used the town outhouse, or perhaps you had dirt, or you had um, bedpans. There, the floors were likely dirt or maybe stone, uh, maybe clay, if you were lucky, clay tiles. You had to walk everywhere. There was no transportation. Uh, there were no buses. Uh, every meal had to be made fresh. There was no refrigeration. There was no electricity. So it was, when it got dark, it was dark. There were small, small oil lamps and maybe some torches that gave a little bit of light. You probably ate two meals a day, bread, fruit, nuts, fish. Uh, meat was rare, so it was a delicacy when you could get it. Uh, Jesus never heard a phone ring. He never flipped a light switch. He never adjusted the thermostat. He probably had one outfit. Uh, there was no health care. There were no pharmacies. There were no drive throughs There were no luxuries. This is the world Jesus came into. Luxuries were non-existent. Houses were small and cramped. Jot this down. And the work never stopped. The work never stopped. Because the people were heavily taxed, uh, the, it's estimated that uh, upwards of 50% of their income was, was, was given over, upwards of 50%. Uh, after Roman taxes, temple taxes, offerings, road taxes, uh, upwards of 50% was gone, likely. So Joseph, as a carpenter, was always on the job. Jesus and his brothers would have had school up until about 7th or 8th grade in our, you know, reckoning. Uh, but when he became a teenager, early teenager, that would stop, and you would just join the family business. Girls usually were not educated. Uh, Mary and Jesus' sisters would spend all day managing the house, the animals, preparing all the meals, getting water, doing the laundry. Basically, imagine, like, it's like running a petting zoo and a small restaurant and an inn. And that was life. The work never stopped. So life was simple but toilsome. Houses were small and cramped. Luxuries were non-existent. The work never stopped. This is the world Jesus stepped down into. This is light of the world coming down into the toil, the sweat of our brow, toil uh, in an oppressed country. Jot this down, number three. Uh, from birth, Jesus had powerful friends and enemies. Powerful friends and enemies. So we read that the wise men showed up and these, uh, these scholars from, from Persia, a thousand miles away, came and they, they brought gifts. So it's, it's pretty nice. They had a little bit of gold. You know, that probably saw them through the early days, but they had to travel, you know, and live out of country for a while. So that probably took a dent out of that. Uh, and um, they, they also announced he was born king, which made him a marked man from the start. You might wonder, why did God let that happen? Why did the star lead the wise men to Herod, you know, shouldn't they have just gone straight to the birthplace of Christ? Well, it's important to understand 
that the wise men had an appointment first with the word of God. So the scholars hustled out and, you know, showed that he had, there were some prophecies that were spoken about him. So their first stop was the word of God, and this shows us how anybody is saved today. God doesn't use these mystical, magical things, you know, like I saw a unicorn appear in my bathroom mirror, and then, you know, what does he do? He gets you to the word. He gets you to the word, and he shows you about Jesus. So the wise men showed up to the word, the scholars told them about the birth, and then they got to go and meet him. So Jesus had powerful friends and enemies. Here's a picture in one of the movies uh, of the wise men, and can you imagine these wealthy, powerful, respected, smart men coming from a thousand miles away, and when they get there, they find a a child, a toddler likely at this point, right? Uh, Can't really talk or walk really well, and they're like, well, there he is, and they bow down and give him gold, right? Don't put it in your mouth. They give him gold and frankincense and myrrh. Jesus had powerful friends, angels appearing several times throughout his birth story, powerful friends, but he also had powerful enemies. Thankfully, Rome had built the best road system ever, which led to the wise men being able to come and also Jesus and his family being able to flee. The road system the Romans made was not matched until the 1600s. Uh, That also allowed for the spread of the gospel. Jot this down. Jesus fulfilled biblical prophecies. Jesus fulfilled biblical prophecies. And uh, there are several that we can mention, but if you want to jot down a few, Numbers 24.17. Numbers 24.17 says something about his star rising. And the, the star, the Christmas star, is one of the most treasured parts of the Christmas story. This, you know, you know, you, whatever you become in this world, however many letters you have after your name, whatever your bank account is filled with, uh, there was not a star guiding people to your birthplace, okay? God didn't just craft a special star and lead people to come and worship you, but that happened with Christ. In Micah 5, 2 to 5, it says that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. You can see how the gears of the ancient world were turning but it was driving Mary and Joseph to the very place they had to be at the time they had to be there to fulfill a prophecy of God. And so Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the city of David, city of kings, right? Jeremiah 23, 5 and Isaiah 9, 7 said Jesus would become the greatest king in history. His throne will never end, Daniel says. So Jeremiah 23, 5 and Isaiah 9, 7 And then Psalm 72, 10 to 11, says powerful rulers would come and fall before him. Powerful rulers would come and fall before him. And then Isaiah 7, 13 to 14, says he would be born born of a virgin. You mix all these things together, and Jesus had quite a road to walk to fulfill the messianic prophecies at his birth, and he did it, and he did it. So he had powerful friends and enemies from when he was born. He fulfilled biblical prophecies, and then jot this down, he was marked for execution. He was marked for execution. There was, uh, in the early days of the first century, there was a Messiah fever in Israel. They, they thought the Messiah's coming, and several imposters stood up. They hated that Rome was in charge. Several imposters stood up and said, hey, let's get Rome out of here, and let's get our own man on the throne and uh, so, so several false messiahs appeared and got people all wound up, but then they were killed. And so there was messianic fever. And what that meant was for Jesus to be declared a deliverer, a king, a messiah, he was marked 
for execution from birth. Hey, what does that do to you? Jesus, his entire life, knew that everyone in his hometown, all the children in his hometown were killed because of him. They came for me. And they're coming for me again. What is it like to live with that hanging over your head? They came for me. And they're coming for me again. Jesus never knew a world where he wasn't targeted by the empire for execution. The things that were said about him at birth were a challenge to all of the powers of earth. And so, when you mix all of this together, and this is, this is my only goal today, you can tell this is a different kind of sermon. My only goal today was to step down into the world of Christ and look around. And I hope that what that accomplishes for you in the weeks ahead is, when you say Merry Christmas, that you think back to that first Christmas, and that we understand that it was a death-defying descent into a dark and dangerous world. Jesus was helpless, powerless, poor, and exposed to the full weight of human brokenness. He had no advantage other than God. His government was corrupt and tyrannical. Taxes were unbearable. Healthcare was non-existent. His net worth was pocket change today. But God supernaturally protected him, prepared him, and used him to overthrow not just the mighty Roman Empire, but the entire enterprise of darkness on earth and in heaven. When you say Merry Christmas, I hope you look around Jesus' world and you realize what a terrifying thing Christmas really was. How Mary and Joseph had no chance but how God the Father kept all of his promises to his son through Abraham, through Isaac, and through Jacob. And God faithfully saw the mission through those early years and spared the son from execution so that one day he could go on to die on the cross, to rise again, and to become the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Hey, that's Merry Christmas. This is what Jesus did for us. Let's worship him for his great sacrifice. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you stepped down into darkness. You left the comforts, the pleasure, the power, the treasures of heaven. You came down here. You came down here into this dark and dangerous world to rescue us and to rule us. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for coming down into this world. Thank you for surviving its peril, for living a perfect life and fulfilling all the prophecies and then offering yourself up to become our Savior and our Lord. I pray that this Christmas we would just know the darkness that you endured to bring the light. And I pray that you would help us to truly, like those wise men, fall on our knees and to worship the one who was born king. We give you all glory, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.